Hello and welcome to the March 9th, 2021 episode of Voices for Change radio show, the weekly talk show hosted by filmmaker Tracy Schott, the award-winning documentary filmmaker, Finding Jen's Voice is Her Movie, which brings to light the reality of intimate partner violence. A tragic story, but today we have a fascinating, fabulous guest, Kelsey McKay, CEO of Respond Against Violence. And these ladies, in honor of International Women's Day yesterday and Women's History Month, will be talking about leading the change by mentoring and collaborating. So Tracy, I'm gonna throw it over to you beautiful ladies. Have a ball. Thanks so much, Hope, um, and thanks, Kelsey, for coming back to Voices for Change Radio. Um, Kelsey you. and I have been doing um, a lot of work to together. We've got a webinar coming up this week that um, she's been instrumental in, in putting together uh, with Respond Against Violence, and that webinar, so we got to pitch that real quick, um, we are going to be talking about uh, beyond defunding and finding um, organizational, um, uh, I, I can't remember the name of it, Kelsey, um, we changed it so many times, but, but we're looking at how um, organizations can work together to support um, law enforcement in responding to intimate partner violence. And we're gonna be talking with a police officer, um, a, a SANE nurse who's developed an adult forensic interview um, uh, organization, a, a survivor of intimate partner violence, and a parent who lost her daughter to a rape and homicide, um, who's developed an amazing um, foundation to support victims. So it's gonna be a really interesting conversation. I'm excited about that one. Yeah, I mean, it sounds stark and depressing the way it's introduced, but the reality is it's it's such a um, exciting opportunity. You know, it's such a positive movement forward. And even though people come from harsh experiences, I think the common theme with all of the people who are going to be on the webinar on Thursday is that they made something good happen as a result of it, and it as it relates to systems change. And, you know, I think it's so important during this time that we look beyond that phrase defunding that can be incredibly polarizing and have honest conversations about what community partners can do to support the police. Um, and that doesn't mean we don't change things. It means that we think about how we can do things differently. So that uh, law enforcement has that support and that we have, you know, we lean on the community partners and, you know, that really is the idea of this podcast today is to look into collaboration and mentorship. So I think it's going to be a really inspiring conversation and virtual webinar for anyone who would like to attend that. I encourage you to do that. Yep. And you can find more information about that at voicesforchange.net. It's voices, the number four, change.net. So let's get started with our topic. Today, we're talking about how to change the world, right? <laughs> easy, easy assignment. Easy, easy, easy. Um, you know, um, when you're looking at big issues and you and I, in our work, we look at big issues. We're looking at things like gender-based violence, equality, the well-being of children, um, you know, and these are and very, very important issues for everybody, but, you know, certainly something that, you know, we have dedicated um, a big part of our lives to, right? Um, how do you change the world? Well, you don't do it by yourself, right? No. And so, so I, one person at a time, but 
uh, uniting voices makes our voice louder. So for sure. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I was a social worker and I was, I was changing the world one case at a time, one family at a time, one child at a time. Um, and I was a little too ambitious for that. Um, I didn't have the patience for it. And when I figured out that I could have a bigger impact through media, that's when I kind of did this seemingly 180, you know, degree in, in, uh, in, uh, my career, but it was really, um, recognizing which one of the things that was really part and parcel of my training as a social worker was talking about systems theory right and systems theory is about how we're all connected it's really that's what it's about and and it looks at how the individual inside of a family inside of a neighborhood inside of a cultural unit inside of a cohort of of people that were the same age and grew up in the same with the same backgrounds um and and how that it your world is all connected and just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger um and you know understanding those connections and understanding that how we act impacts on the bigger but also what happens in the in the bigger culture impacts how we act so there it's it's not in one direction it's not linear you know our our behavior is in the world is all interactive so pardon me and complex it's not all a linear path with one answer it is incredibly complex and i think where our backgrounds collide is i was a prosecutor for 12 13 years and my whole day was about individual cases you know thousands of cases that represented both the defendant whose rights and uh, procedure needed to be respected and upheld through justice, but also hearing the voices of survivors and what it was like to go through that system. And I think for 13 years, what I didn't recognize is that my job wasn't systems. No one was paying me to change the world. And from a young age, I guess kind of, I had a a false or real, I don't know, I'll leave that up to people to decide. Um, a sense of that my plan was to change the world. And there was no doubt in that. And working in your case as a social worker or myself as a prosecutor, every day was individual cases. And every time I would see, you know, a hiccup in the system or a gap in the system or a problem in the, sol- in the system, I always wanted to fix it. But the challenge is, is I think we expect prosecutors and police and social workers to change the system, but they have a caseload and that is their priority. And so I remember um, dreaming of what life would be like after the DA's office and what I could do to take my experience and knowledge and lessons I learned and how my eyes had been opened and apply that to change the system. I like to be efficient. And so when I've seen the same problem for the 10th time, that's incredibly frustrating for me. Um, And so, you know, the last three, four years, I guess now not being in the DA's office and not just having individual cases, but really working towards how can those things better inform, you know, our system as a whole to change all survivors and all, all, you know, all of the justice system um, has, has been a journey. Yeah. And it's, it's been really, um, it's been really important for me as I've I venture back into social work, you know, I mean, the finding Jen's voice felt brought me kind of full circle in my world. Um, you know, I went from, um, you know, dealing with child abuse cases in therapy to, um, 
you know, making television commercials and then um, finding Jen's voice. Jennifer Snyder was actually killed uh, 10 years ago next week. And I started uh, the documentary Finding Jen's Voice right after um, she was killed. And, um, you know, when I've learned so much and, you know, bringing bringing that story to light and sharing it with people. I've met so many amazing people across the country like you. Um, and but I've also I've also seen some issues, you know, in the systems, right? And one of the issues is this whole idea of siloed thinking. And it's it's the antithesis of systems thinking, right? And when you think of silos, like it is something as simple as thinking about like, oh, we've got sexual assault services here and we've got human trafficking services here and we've got domestic violence services here. Well, they're all the same. And and in police agencies and sometimes in prosecutor's office, a homicide is separate from that. So it's like it goes to one division of its uh, non-homicidal event, no matter how, even if it was an attempted homicide right? It might go to the family violence division or the sex crimes division, but then it becomes a homicide and the homicide division handles it. And the family violence division and the homicide division or sex crimes may not ever talk to each other about that case. And the problem is then we don't learn anything from it. And, you know, the issue with silos, it's, I remember when, so I did a regular, like a brand new baby prosecutor, traffic tickets, DWI stuff, that kind of thing. And then pretty quickly, very early in my career, handled domestic violence misdemeanors, then went to the DA's office, handled child abuse and then sex crimes and then back to family violence. And, you know, I remember sitting in a child abuse conference because, of course, many conferences are divided up. You know, here's the conference you go to for child abuse crimes. Here's one for sex crimes. Here's one for domestic violence. Here's one for homicide. And I remember sitting in a child abuse conference and listening about children recanting, which is a regular occurrence in child abuse. And it's something that we understand and we navigate and we call experts and juries seem to understand it. I remember sitting there and thinking, all of these things apply to my family violence cases. Why aren't, why aren't we just applying the same method with some adjustments and doing that in this world? We could be more successful with our cases if we had experts to call to translate the behavior to a jury. And, you know, breaking down those silos is so important because otherwise we compartmentalize what is a very global issue in the criminal justice system. Well, and and that was how many years ago? 14 years ago? Yeah, I mean, uh, I actually have a question. So I left the DA's office four years ago, and I was going to ask you when you mentioned um, finding Jen's voice and her death and that it's almost 10 years. Does it feel like 10 years? Does it feel like a lot less, a lot more? Or how does it feel? No, it it in some ways, I feel like I've been doing this project for my entire life. Um, but in other ways, I just can't believe it's been 10 years. You know, I, I'm on LinkedIn, you know, and I started getting those congratulations on your work anniversary, you know, uh, <laughs> messages, emails last week. And I'm like, what work anniversary is that? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, Shop Productions, I started in uh, 2011, March 1st. And on March 23rd, I got the phone call from um, Trina, Jen's aunt, um, asking me to do a documentary film about her. Um, So it's, yeah, it's kind of mind blowing that it, it, you know, I spent four years making the film 
and it was released released in 2015 which is probably about the time that you saw it i think it's screened in austin that fall of 2000 yeah. and, and you know what's scary is i'd been a domestic violence prosecutor for many years when i saw that film and as i've mentioned too many times that film one of i think the greatest achievements of that film is you bring what is traditionally something that only people who are survivors or um, people involved in the work care about and advocate for, and you bring it to a, a stage where your average person can connect to the problem. Because the first issue is people even recognizing that domestic violence is the global pandemic that it is. Um, you know, we've had great progress with the Me Too movement with sexual violence and sexual harassment and disproportionate treatment of women and this type of thing. But, you know, I, I keep waiting for that second bump to happen where we recognize just how much and how many people domestic violence impacts. And so I, what I loved about that film was not only how much it taught me to understand power and control and pregnancy and some of the lethality factors, but it, it did what I really hope to do, which is to have conversations and be able to help inform people without it having to be personal to them right? Uh, just on a human level, this is an important issue to talk about and think about because you're surrounded about it. You just don't know it because people don't talk about it. Yeah. You know, when, when the conservative statistics are 27% of women in the U.S. will experience physical violence in her lifetime, not everybody experiences physical violence, but a lot of people experience um, power and control and, and emotional, uh, emotional abuse. I mean, I, I just had a conversation an hour ago with somebody who, you know, I mentioned the film to and she said, oh yeah, I was in an, in an emotionally and psychologically abusive relationship for seven years. And, you know, and it's a very common problem. Um, and and so the question is how do we get how do we fix it how do yeah, we fix well, it kelsey I, well okay so if i mean if i could rule the world here's how i would fix it i suppose you know versus people just have to understand the issue and it is a complicated issue to understand because i think we have this idea that once you turn a certain age 18 for instance your free will is intact. I mean, we live in America for goodness sakes, right? Um, why wouldn't she leave? Why would she do this? And so connecting people just to the concept of how abusive relationships, um, well, one, it's not that women pick abusers, it's that women get into relationships and then it becomes abusive. Scott Hampton, who is um, a wonderful speaker and um, treatment provider, and I, I love partnering with him. He explains it really well. And what he says is basically, you know, no one jumps into the boiling water with an abuser. No one says, oh, he's an abuser. I think he seems like a lovely match for me. You know, they are lured in by these charming, manipulative perpetrators who then slowly isolate them and they slowly add on the guilt and take away their financial freedom. And they do these things slowly. And he describes it like putting someone in cold water and then turning on the heat and it slowly boils. And by the time it's boiling, it's too late to jump out. You don't even know what you're in. You've been isolated. And so I think the first step is people understanding that instead of having the gut reaction of blaming the victim, like why did she stay, is understanding that most people in abusive relationships are as confused as the general population about it. They are not experts on it. And I was watching, I don't know if you had a chance to watch the um, Meghan Markle and Harry 
interview with Oprah two nights ago, but I mean, I, I, I sat there watching it thinking they're doing such a beautiful job of explaining an abusive relationship, you yeah. know, the isolation, um, the, the way free will can be taken from you. And in, when she talked about becoming suicidal, right, we see that all the time with domestic violence victims. And I really do think in many cases, the abuser's tactic, if, especially if they have separated, um, and he has lost that control, is to get her to commit suicide because then it justifies all of the um, highlights he's ever tried to define the relationship with, which is she's crazy, you know? Um, and I, I see that all the time. I have many cases, many clients where I feel like, wow, they're just trying to wear her down until she kills herself. And that in itself will justify it. So I thought, you know, things like that interview, I thought were so powerful in people seeing how these things happen. Um, mm -hmm. And so the first is just that understanding. The two is to start talking about it, right? Start having conversations about it, just like Me Too did for sexual assault. Um, having and, and, and bringing men into this conversation. This is not a women's issue, right? I have a daughter. My husband cares about her. He needs to understand this, right? He has a wife. He has a mother. He has sisters. And so, you know, some kind of campaign where people understand this very complex issue. And instead of blaming victims, right? Understanding them. And I think that requires humanizing the issue um, and putting faces out there. And unfortunately, so many domestic violence victims are so beat down and their voice taken away. And that's one thing I loved that Megan said on that interview was simply that I didn't, I didn't have a voice. I was silenced. And that really is the issue that so many survivors in, and they're just trying to survive. Right. They're trying to keep their kids safe. They're trying to have shelter. They're trying to have food. They're trying to navigate all these complex, complicated dynamics with almost no validation or support. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that's the beginning. But awareness cannot end with just statistics because statistics are not humanizing. They might be shocking and they might raise money and they might, you know, get research, but in the end, we must humanize this issue. And survivors of domestic violence, whether they're in the relationship or out of the relationship, they are dehumanized and they are blamed. And so that culture must shift if we're gonna make any progress forward. Um, I mean, I had the same conversation every day where I, you know, someone, they're, you know, their urge is to just to say, well, why didn't she this? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that victims like couldn't have done things differently, but the, the difference between someone like me who has shelter, um, has food, has support is that I'm not making a choice between a bad thing and a bad thing. I'm making choices every day between a good thing and a bad thing, right? Am I going to go steal the creamer from the store um, or am I going to die, right? That's not a choice I make. I pick whether I want French vanilla or hazelnut every morning. Um, and so we act as those survivors have the same free will and choices that we do, and, and they just don't. And we have to humanize the reality of that situation. So what you're talking about could be applied to so many um, problem areas in our culture, in our society, right? Um, the, you're, you're talking about um, actually putting yourself in the shoes of somebody else and understanding they don't have the same... Um, background or experience that you do um, or opportunities and I mean that, that goes that that sounds like the conversation we've been having in the last year about race relations right without a doubt I mean that has allowed me to and like I will not deny I did not understand that I always thought well I'm not racist like I'm not racist I don't I never paid attention to whether there was a 
a B or a W next to the defendant's name. That never changed my attitude, but understanding the systemic aspects of it. Um, you know, I have people very close to me who are women of color, some survivors, some friends, some, you know, just people in my life. And they, you know, I, I give them credit for having, giving me grace and having patience and explaining these things. But all these things are the same exact problem, right? Um, the race issues, you know, they all have different undertones and different aspects to it. But when it comes to understanding people who are different than us or unlike us, you know, I'm not a survivor. Um, and yet I had to figure out how to understand this in a way that not only I could convince a jury, um, but now that I can convince audiences when I do training and then, you know, as we do these types of things with, I hope people watching are, you know, your average person, um, give them a way to relate to this complex situation and these complex issues in a way that's not overwhelming because I mean, it can, you know, I have people who it's, you know, friends who aren't in this work who will see one bad incident in the news and just get overwhelmed by it. And we have to recognize not everyone is built like us um, to absorb that kind of pain and trauma in the outside world and accept that that's the reality. You know, I think one of the biggest struggles I had, especially doing child abuse was having a jury, much less myself, admit that people do these things to children and people. Um, and it's so difficult when you have like a living human being in that courtroom who's a defendant and think, wow, they, no, no, they, people can't do that to other humans. And it's accepting that kind of, we have to live out of that bubble um, of both privilege um, and burying our heads in the sand um, to move this conversation forward. Otherwise people can just say that wouldn't happen to me. Well, it, it shouldn't matter if it can happen to you. One, it can. Um, and two, it will happen to somebody, you know, and so let's start having conversations that change it. And that is so empowering to both practitioners and survivors when they know that their story can change things and change the conversation. Let's, let's talk, um, about the systems that are out there and what, what systems do right and what systems do wrong. You know, um, when I, since I've been kind of back in this world um it's very clear to me that the systems don't necessarily talk to each other and it's it's beyond you know the the divisions of the police department or the da's office it's it's bigger than that it's this domestic violence agency doesn't talk to this law enforcement and or you know this this domestic violence agency that that works with uh victims doesn't talk to the batter's intervention program over here. Well, and it's bigger than just the criminal justice system, right? It's right. it's interaction of, you know, I think I thought when I first was like, oh, I can change the criminal justice system, it's broken. I thought just we were broken. I It wasn't until I started having conversations, school systems, medical systems, you know, it, it, it's, it's terrifying. You know, the criminal justice system, um, if you want to use the word justice, I think more people are now using the term criminal legal system because there is not a lot of justice ingrained, especially for victims in the criminal justice system. It is set up to protect the rights of defendants. And we have to accept that so that we can recognize it's a difficult, it is a difficult system for a victim to survive, um, not just because of what they've experienced in their background, but to be judged and to be treated and cross-examined and their life dissected. Um, and second guest and risk their children being taken. Um, 
that's a that's a struggle for anyone to willingly sign up for. So when we say, oh, just call the police, it 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 ain't that easy. You know, what comes after that can be as bad, if not sometimes worse for them than the abuse that they endured. And so yep. it's not just traumatized. Absolutely. It's not just about fixing the criminal system. That's kind of where I started. But, you know, I remember sitting, I used to travel a ton pre-COVID and, you know, whenever someone sits next to me and it's like, oh, what do you do? I'm like, you know, it always, sometimes I just try to like put my head in the book and sometimes I run into the most fascinating people. And I remember this one plane ride I was sitting on um, and a woman who basically wanted, she was a former teacher and she's like, oh yeah, I, I want to change the public school system. And I was like, oh, I want to change the criminal justice system. And, you know, we've continued to text over the years, but it's like, oh, they're okay. More systems are broken and we can bury our hands and heads in the sand or we can do something about it. And I think if we can find solutions that fix any system that can apply much broader than the criminal legal system. It can apply to public schools. It can apply to so many different things where there's inequity. Well, and it gets back to this idea of the systems are all interrelated. Um, you know, what happens in the school system impacts what happens in the legal system. They all impact impact what hap happens in the healthcare system and it's, it's a two-way street yeah right? the family court system itself think about if you have to choose between reporting a crime and losing your children what are you going to do right. right you're going to protect keeping your children over anything criminal um and and so not just are systems similar in some of their gaps they it's complex and they overlap in so many different ways that it gets overwhelming right and the only way we're going to fix it is by talking to each other. Oh, I agree. Um, I, I learned so much just, I would say more than 50% of my average day is talking to people, not right. getting paid to talk to people, just having conversations, learning. I had, you know, what was, so this is an interesting conversation I had last week as I'm working on, um, I specialize in strangulation cases and I um, am creating a series that talks about not you know, looking beyond the domestic violence implications, but looking at the role that um, pornography has played and the, you know, perpetrators just claiming the rough sex defense. So it's called sexualization of strangulation. Um, and through that, we have started to interview quite a few experts in BDSM and the kink world, which might be like, what? That's just for shock. I spent three and a half hours on a Zoom meeting with Jay Wiseman, who is a leader in that community, written the number one book on S&M 101. The lessons I learned about consent from him, if we applied that to our culture and our communities, we could really learn, I mean, we could learn so much. I mean, I took like 20 pages of notes and I was like, who, you know, whoever thought to look towards the BDSM community to have healthy conversations about consent. Define BDSM bondage. I mean, I, I don't, but, but I, two of them have like two meanings. I think it's bondage, domin, dominance, submissive, sadomasochism, massage. I mean, there's Google it. I mean, or, or, I mean, get ready, but it is, you know, talking, it, I mean, it's fascinating. And I thought, well, gosh, if I, you know, if I had a, if I had a real job and someone else paid me, you know, a salary, I would, I wouldn't be able to have a four-hour conversation on Friday with two leading BDSM experts. And, you know, what I love about kind of my new life, where I'm my own boss and I can have these bigger conversations with folks like you, is 
I can spend four hours on a Zoom meeting on Friday and talk about bondage and learn about consent in a different way. And, you know, people have figured out a lot of things in the world. Um, we don't need to reinvent the wheel in many cases. We just have to look to who is doing it correctly. Um, and, you know, and think outside the box. And that's really what this podcast is about, you know, um, Voices for Change is really about finding all of those voices out there, people who are doing really great work, um, who have that knowledge and, and spreading the knowledge, right? And, and bringing those voices together. And again, I keep coming back to how are we going to change the world, Kelsey? Um, you know, and I, I think that when we talk about collaboration, it's not competition. So, so often what we find is organizations competing for limited resources. Right. Um, yep, Com competing for the same dollars, um, competing for uh, media attention because that translates into success in many times, um, you know, but, but when people actually collaborate and work together, they, they kind of lift each other up. Right. Yeah. But it's that's hard. And that yeah. mindset is very different from the way most people are trained in in the professional world. Right. Well, and it's so for so I'm I think I'm 41 now. I'm 41. Um, and so it's been the last five years have been an interesting transition for me. Um, I never would have thought about just doing my own thing. Like, what's your job? I would change the world. Like, that's it in a tagline. Like, that's my goal. That's my mission every day when I wake up. So there are really two parts to this. One, I feel like the way we change the world is we have to listen to survivors and survivors have to be part of this campaign. I can say as much as I want, but we have to incorporate the needs, the wants, in the voices of survivors who have lived it. I think we They're have- the experts of their own experience. Uh, Without a doubt. And, and I, I work with survivors. I represent survivors. I talk to survivors. I invest in survivors. And um, I hear their stories. And some of them, they won't be ready to share their story for five years. Some will never be ready to share their story. Some will die in their story. Um, but there are so many strong people, women and men and children, um, who can give us insight if only they felt comfortable talking about it and not being judged. And like on Thursday, we have Kristen who's going to join us, who I absolutely adore. And she actually works for me now. That's how much I believed in her and her passion. And so the first step is like not telling victims what they need, but listening to what they need and fulfilling those requests. So that's why programs like the adult forensic interviewing program, um, that's how those things were developed. It wasn't us telling victims and survivors what they need. It was us listening to what are the barriers in place to give them access. And then the second thing is, you know, that's been interesting over the last few years is, you know, I, I again, always just thought I would work for somebody else. Like, that's what you do. Um, never would have thought of just, you know, doing what I want to do. Um, my husband started his, he'd all, my husband was the opposite. He always wanted to start his own business. And I was so, you know, risk adverse in those kind of situations. And he finally was like, I can't, I got to do it now or never. And he did it a year before I left the DA's office. And I was like, oh, we won't, maybe we won't go broke. We can pay our mortgage and um, we can pay for groceries. And so when I left the DA's office, which wasn't, wasn't my choice um, originally, um, it was the greatest gift I ever got. 
And a big step for me was recognizing that the world hadn't figured it out. I think I lived the first 35-ish years thinking my parents and the world had solved all the problems. And I think there's a point in your life where you realize, oh, my parents have, like, maybe they don't know everything. And then you become a parent and you realize, oh God, my kids think I know everything. (laughs) Like, I mean, when is the day going to happen that they realize, like, I'm just winging it like the rest of us. Yeah, they'll probably Um, be about 12 or 13. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) When it comes to IT, for sure. I mean, my 10-year-old is like my IT manager. But I mean... (laughs) It is, you know, when you go, you know, I, I, I had mentors throughout my career and I've had both good and bad experiences with mentorship, um, in, in me being the mentee and them being the mentor. And I kind of just, you just assume you're always going to be in that role. And a couple of years ago, um, I've had two experiences where I felt, I don't even know the right word, screwed over by mentors, I guess is the right way. And that was traumatizing for me, but it was also like a catapult to like, oh, like I got it. I got to run my own ship. And it was around that same time that I started to get more and more people reaching out to me and kind of treating me like a mentor, which was odd. I didn't set myself in a position, like I didn't plan to do that, but I realized, oh, we don't have all the answers. Like, oh, wait, does that mean I can solve some of these things? Like there's still room for me to make a difference and make a change. And so, you know, I've been lucky to along the way over the last four or five years have other mentors, but also like have mentors that are like we're on an even playing field. There's this interesting thing that happens, I think, with a mentor. Um, you know, when you're, I, I think about when I first started you know, in this business, it was a new business for me. And, you know, this kind of, I had this mentor mentee relationship. And then as I became more um, learned, you know, where I I had more experience, and I kind of knew what was going on. I, we we got to that place where we're kind of on an even playing field. And, and Mm -hmm. that changed the relationship. And, you know, and I think that anybody who, who works as a mentor, needs to really strive to get their mentee to be at an even playing field and get to a place where you're learning from them. And actually, you know, every intern I've ever had, I've learned things from, you know. You know, I always say when I go do trainings, I mean, I can have a room filled of five, whatever, five people, 500, 5,000. And I never do like, and I'm the speaker, I'm the instructor. I always learn as much from them as I hope they learn from me. And, you know, that is what grows your perspective. And, you know, I hate when people say like, oh, my boss or I work for, I'm like, no, 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 we work together. Like you teach me things. And, you know, I have an amazing mentor. Jan Langbein is a wonderful mentor of mine. She's the CEO of Genesis Women's Shelter. And, you know, I'll call her when I need like validation or confidence or guidance. And um, she, she has a quote that I think is great. And she, you know, when I'm anxious about something and I know I'm going to get pushed back and she says, you know, be that as it may, and then move right forward. Like that might be true, but we're going to keep going forward. And um, I think it's, it, it's so special to have those relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need them at every stage of your life. If, if you are if you are somebody who continues to learn, which is what you sh- every I believe everybody should do, because once you stop learning, you just start regressing, right? And who wants to do that? Um, yeah. You know, um, you got to keep your brain alive, and you do that by 
adding new information to it, right? The more I learn from people, you know, the better I feel about myself and yeah. the better I, you know, and I can give back. And it's, it's, it's this interactive relationship. It's so important. Well, that's a good point because I think mentor, when we say the word mentorship, you see this hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. Of like someone who is more accomplished or experienced or like fill in the blank. They're better than you. They know more than you. And I think a healthy mentorship is a two-way um, experience. You, yeah. you know, like Jan and I were texting last night. I hope she's okay that I'm talking about our conversation. But like she asked me a question. I was like, how is she asking me something? She knows everything. And so, you know, accepting that these are, you know, these aren't hierarchical positions. These are shared experiences and people that you respect enough to call a mentor or to be a mentor to um, are probably people who have great ideas and that you can exercise your own brain and thoughts and ideas with. And so it should be more of an equal relationship um, rather than a hierarchical one. And that and that gets us back to this whole idea of creating a network of collaborators whose right. skills complement your own, you know? So, I mean, you and I are working together on this podcast and you're going to be helping out with uh, guest uh, hosting because I can't do it all and um, <laughs> I need your help. And um, but we're also doing other projects together and and, you know, we have very different skill sets. We have the same goals, but, you know, I didn't become a lawyer. I mean, my husband wanted me to become a lawyer, you know, and I was going back to film school. He was like, what are you doing that for? We need a lawyer in the family. And I felt like I want to be a lawyer barely most of the time. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I have the experience of I love law school. I went to UT Law. Um, I love law school because it it allowed me to think um, and strategize and learn to think through all different perspectives. And I feel like I lost that a little bit as a prosecutor because it's so it's such a adversarial system, especially when someone's life, liberty, all these things are on the line and you're calling them an abuser or a perpetrator or a child molester. Um, and for many years, I think it, I got caught up in the adversarial aspects of it. And what I love now over the last four years is I feel like the things I loved about law school, learning, and, and frankly, I was natural at, at as a child, which is learning how to argue all the time. <laughs> um, you know, that, you know, playing double, you know, people who play doubles advocate, right? It's, that's kind of what you do and you know, the way it lended itself well as a prosecutor is I was always thinking about what here's my argument. Here's how the defense is going to respond. Here's how I need to respond to that. And I was always prepared to think through all different sides. And, you know, uh, since I've left prosecution, I now don't see people in terms of defendants or victims. I recognize that victims get arrested all the time. Um, and I also recognize that, that people who are not guilty of a crime are arrested and called defendants. And so that perspective has been um, life-changing, especially when it comes to things like uh, prostituted individuals, trafficked individuals, victims of domestic violence. You know, you will do things to survive, and sometimes they are illegal. And when your choice is die or do something illegal, you know, I hope you pick do something illegal, um, and that you then have a good attorney and a prosecutor or law enforcement officer who uses their discretion wisely. Um, I, know I, I don't look at the world like that anymore. Defendant, victim, good, bad. And so I think that it is such a perspective that it's like, 
wow, when we silo ourselves as prosecutors and we're career prosecutors or career public defenders, it's it can be so difficult to even consider the other side because it's so ingrained in us for us to be advocates and adversaries. And I always, I say this every day, everything I ever learned, I learned from an advocate because they look at the context, right? They can explain behavior. They are non-judgmental about it. And I've been That's so- That's systems training we started with, right? And it's thinking about it's thinking about the individual in context. Absolutely. And in criminal system, advocates are not high up on the pyramid. They should be. They should be at the very top. But you know, the structure of like a DA's office, for incident, for instance, is is the advocates, the victim witness counselors, those that those that could actually help translate these behaviors that we struggle with. Um they could teach us all. I, I was very lucky. Margaret Bassett was my victim services counselor. She was totally overqualified for the, for the position. And um, we both like to drink wine. We um, would end up on, you know, rooming together, going to conferences. And I mean, she would school me and she would let me challenge her and she would challenge me back. And thank goodness for that. I, I got more education through her than in many years in both college and probably law school. Well, again, you're talking about that whole mentorship. Yeah, and, yeah, and and it's and it's an equal, you know. It should be right, but know, I think like that we, we mentor each other. You know, exactly. And I you hope know, you set up your camera on your on your computer. <laughs> I'm not sure it's right. <laughs> so I'm struggling with like the proportions here, but it's okay. Well, it's that's it's, my aunt's painting in the background there. <laughs> She's a beautiful artist in Greenwich, Connecticut. But, you know, it's absolutely right. I think that this hierarchical structure of mentorship needs to be broken down and we need to rethink who, you know, lawyers, we tend to think we know it all. I mean, even without a law degree, I thought that. And um, so I think rethinking how we structure those things in the system is really important because right now, like advocates tend to be on the bottom of the pile. Um, and lawyers are like, no, no, we can't win that case. Well, if you talk to your advocate, you might figure out a way to try this case differently. And I mean, I started calling my victim services counselor Margaret as an expert witness because she was so good at explaining things to me. I was like, a jury needs to understand that just like that. Um, and that changed everything and how we prosecuted domestic violence cases. Um, and then we did the same thing with strangulation. You know, I started working with her paramedics and I get them to come be the translator to the jury. And sometimes I wish everyone could serve on a jury, on a domestic violence case or sexual assault case um, that's done really well for a prosecutor who understands it and with an expert because, you know, you, we can educate our community that way between our grand juries and our juries. Like we can educate more and more people. I, there were times I lost trials, but I changed 12 people's minds about how to look at these cases, or maybe in the case of a, you know, a hung jury, I changed eight people's minds and four people didn't want to have their minds changed or, um, and so having those conversations is really important. Um, not just because you might know someone. Sorry. And it's why we're doing this, right? You know, I mean, hopefully we can change more than 12 minds at a time. Um, <laughs> kind of goes back to, you know, working with one child or one um, woman or family at a time, as opposed to, um, you know, ha having a big picture um, and a bigger, a bigger mouth, right, about what, what you're doing. Um, and that's really what media is, you know, um, 
all media, whether it's a podcast or a film or a television show or a radio show, these things are all um, ways of talking to a bigger audience and hopefully doing it in a, um, a respectful way that doesn't just um, feed people's um, polarization. <laughs> Yeah, the exactly. The polarization that's gone on in the last, you know, few years has just been ridiculous. Um, it just keeps getting worse. And, and this comes back to this idea of if you really want to change, you all have to just kind of you start with listening, like you do with the survivor, right? I think we can learn so much from survivors. But it's not just survivors of intimate partner violence. It's, it's listening to people who have um, a problem and then trying to figure out how that problem can be solved and how we how we use the systems that are in place to work better yeah and like I am I am anxiously awaiting like how is the ro royal family going to respond like now is a mo like it's going to be a moment it's either going to be a great moment or a horrible moment. Are they going to acknowledge the biases within their systems? Are they going to address it? Or are they going to deny it? And most abusers deny it. Um, but there are times when I am surprised by the accountability that people take. And, you know, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement is a wonderful example of, of that. We all, you know, those of us with white privilege who have lived different lives, we're I think so often it's so hard for us just to admit that there's other people who don't live like us. Like, oh no, but we had a black president. Okay, well that's not, okay, that we had one does not mean that it is equal for all. And I, I tend to be pretty okay with being wrong and okay with being proven incorrect and uh, like willing to learn from that. And I think we have to open our hearts and our minds. And again, it's, it, it's about humanizing that people have had different experiences than us and it's not always their fault. Um, and so I'm really, really interested to see if they take this opportunity. Um, I feel like with the Black Lives um, Matters movement, the struggle for me, um, not for me personally, but I think me professionally is I have so many good friends who are police officers who are wonderful people. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I, I dedicated so much of my life to improving how law enforcement responds. And I get so motivated and inspired by especially some of these young officers um, who have committed their lives to serve their communities. And some of us are on very different ends of the spectrum politically. Um, and it is, you know, this is why I think the training we do on Thursday is going to be so important because I want to be sensitive to, to that, but we have to have the conversation. And I think that, you know, Shane, who is one of our officers, we, when we were talking with him the other day, we just asked like, how do you feel when you hear the word defending? Like, how do we reimagine this phrase so that you, so that law enforcement, their first instinct isn't us, isn't we're trying to take away your support, but instead that we're trying to give you more resources to lean on your community partners with. And, you know, it's been, I have, you know, I, I have a lot of law enforcement friends who I think likewise respect me in a reciprocal mm -hmm. kind of way, even though we might have very different views politically. Um, and I think it's, it's been the times where I've, listen to them about, you know, how the Black Lives Matter movement has hurt them um, and how they're being treated and how that feels and how disheartened they are. And then trying to figure, okay, how do I, how do I recognize that both of these worlds and struggles exist? It's not one or the other. 
Um, and one thing I know is we have to talk with each other. We can't keep talking to each other. We must talk with each other because we are better when we do that together. It's much easier to watch um, people bash each other on television than to actually have a real conversation with a real person in in the room. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna change you're gonna change your tune pretty quickly when it's an actual person, right? So um, that's where the component of humanizing comes in, right? As long as stories are just headlines and they are not voices we don't see it as a real person. What we need is something that corresponds to sitting in a courtroom, like I used to sit, prosecuting someone that didn't look like a criminal and reconciling my humanity with asking a jury to send them to prison for in some cases their entire life. Um, that was hard for me. Um, I've done it and I don't, I don't regret it in certain cases, um, but how do we humanize victims in the same way that a defendant sitting in front of me who has raped and strangled women sometimes to death? Why is it that I feel humanity towards them? And I, you know, right? Like, how do we incorporate that layer of humanity into the victims and survivors of these cases? Um, I don't know that I know the answer. I don't know that everyone's capable of that. Um, but I think we have to remove the layer of how we disassociate the reality that people are being raped, they're being murdered, they're being destroyed. And the criminal justice system sometimes, in many cases, adds to that. So one, how do we humanize crime victims um, in how we respond to their crime, which is what we're gonna be talking about on Thursday. Like what are ways that we can help them navigate the criminal justice system in a way that doesn't add a second traumatizing experience. But then how do we have the outside world? How do we just humanize the issue? And you know, those are two different things. Um, and, and yet both so important on those parallel tracks to change the world, which is, you know, well, we, might need, we might need another podcast to figure out exactly how to change the world because, and, um, <laughs> and people with, uh, you know, there are other people with grand ideas. You know, I have a lot, I, I dream a lot. I problem solve a lot, but what I love is that once I left the DA's office, I recognize there's a whole world of people out there like me who want to change the world. And that's great. Cause I, I mean, I have a lot of energy. Um, but, I, I don't have five of me at every moment in life. And so we have got to collaborate. And so, um, and that of course kind of circles back to why we're, why we're here today is it's okay to ask for help. Um, it's okay to ask for help if you're a victim. It is okay to ask for help if you're a mother. It's okay to ask for a moment if you're overwhelmed during this time. It's okay to say you're not okay. Um, but you have I, to- I would, I would correct you and say that it's more than okay, it's imperative. Yes, that's probably, yeah, I, that's something I need to work on. I, I've never been good at asking, like, I've never been good with not being okay. You know, I like I'm, to be right. I like to be in charge. I like to be in control. I got all of that stuff going on. But um, I also, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I said to Hope, I was feeling overwhelmed by all of the, you know, all the stuff, all the things on my plate. And, and, um, you know, and so I called you and said, help. And yep. you said, sure, I'll help. And, you know, so, and guess what? I feel so much better. And I'm, I'm excited about the, the move forward. Um, 
So we really should wrap up. Um, we're way past our time, aren't we, Hope? I am grateful for the collaboration um, with UKLC and also with Respond Against Violence. Um, we've got some plans right. to um, do some grant writing together to help support our missions with our mission, with our singular mission with a couple of different uh, ways of approaching it. I'm really, really grateful to have you uh, be part of our team. So thanks so much. Well, I appreciate you and I appreciate Hope. I mean, she's doing such a wonderful thing, um, you know, propelling the voices of women in so many different ways um, and categories. And I encourage everyone who's interested in the work we do to follow Respond Against Violence and Voices for Change on Facebook. We are working to redo our website and get newsletters and all of that stuff. So there's a lot of exciting stuff coming up. And then again, I really encourage people to tune in on Thursday. Um, I think it's gonna be those of you who are in communities who are trying to figure out solutions, you're gonna get a lot of solutions there. It's a very hopeful um, hopeful webinar. So I'm excited for Thursday as well. And um, very grateful to Incandescent Women incandescent radio, all of the incandescent <laughs> brands that Hope has going on um, and uh, her ongoing uh, support as a cheerleader and uh, producer of the show. How, because it was such a big, you know, uh, readjustment in my mind and how I thought about domestic violence, how can people, how can people go watch Finding Jen's Voice themselves if they're tuning in now and you know, want to want to really connect with this issue and understand that the the basic complexity of power and control. I think finding Jen's voice is the perfect platform. How can people watch that? So VoicesForChange.net. We're streaming it. It's four ninety nine to stream it, and I think we still have a buy one gift one uh, deal going on. If you know that you can you can watch it and then share it with a friend. Um, and we just really want people to watch the film. So it is on voices for the number four change.net and um, you can stream it there. Oh, I have an idea for this, this month for um, uh, uh, women's history month and yesterday being the day, I, what would be great is give yourself a break from reading. And if you have a book club that you're doing virtually or some of you in person, watch finding Jen's voice and use that as your book club this month. I think that would be that's like one tangible thing that people could do. That would be an amazing thing for people to do. And um, trust me, it's impossible to watch the film and not have a conversation afterwards. Okay. Um, and I, I, I love that idea because one of the things I've always been concerned about was people just sitting alone in a, in a room by themselves and watching it on their computer and, and not being able to decompress because it's a pretty heavy subject. Um, we'll have a podcast, a book club podcast <laughs> at the end of the month or next month or something. We, people we could do that. We could do that. that. Right. Adding um, more, more projects, more projects, right? Hope. Yeah. Yeah. But that would be fun. Uh, and I bet I, I bet I could get a whole bunch of the survivors from the film to join that. That would be actually really a fun, fun thing. We'll have to look, we'll have to put that on the calendar. Put on the list. Yeah. All right. Well, leading by change by mentoring and collaborating is clearly what you're all doing, and I'm honored to be part of it. Kelsey is actually the cover story of incandescentwomen.com's March issue. So thank you very much for introducing us to the magnificent Kelsey, uh, Miss Tracy. And we're thrilled to be here producing and sponsoring and honoring the work that you all are doing. So we're going to put an end to domestic violence. Here's changing the world. That is what Incandescent has always been about, making it a better place for everyone to 
work together as a team. So I thank you so much. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, the creator of all the incandescent stuff. Thanks for the shout out, Trace. And we will talk to you again on Tuesday, March 16th, where we'll be interviewing Dr. Ray Taylor, who is a remarkable woman, just as Tracy is, and we're excited to bring that to you. One last thing, I wanna give a shout out to my client and dear friend, Rita Cheng, who sent me these magnificent flowers for International Women's Day yesterday. Beautiful. Rita, we do a, Margarita's with Margarita, 15 minutes or less of financial tips for women to flex their financial muscles, Friday night, happy hour, uh, 5 p.m. East Coast time. So thank you, Rita. Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you, Tracy. We will talk to you again next Tuesday, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Incandescent Radio Networks. Thank you. Thank you.